If you are visiting with us today, we have just started a sermon series on the Minor Prophets. Those are the last 12 books, largely unknown to a lot of Christians, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so this morning, we are looking to wrap up our study of the first of those minor prophets, that is the book of Hosea. This book of Hosea, written by Hosea, it is the longest of all the minor prophetic books. It is also most likely the oldest, 200 years before Hosea is ministering to God's people, God's people had divided into two separate kingdoms. Ten tribes went north, we know them as Israel, and two tribes stayed south, and we know them as Judah. And Hosea was preaching in the north. Hosea was primarily preaching in the north to Israel, and he was writing and he was speaking to a people who had turned away from God. The pattern or the cycle of God's relationship with His people in the Old Testament goes like this. Disobedience, discipline, desperation, deliverance, then back to disobedience. That really summarizes the cycle that you find between God and His people in the Old Testament. And over all of that is a devoted God. So God is absolutely devoted to His people, but they disobey Him. And then God brings His discipline. And then they become desperate and cry out to God again. And then in His mercy, He delivers them. He rescues them. And then they're back to disobedience. So that is the cycle that you have in the Old Testament. And as Hosea is writing, if you think about that cycle... As Hosea is writing, God's people are in severe disobedience. So much so that the the clock was ticking and they were about to be severely disciplined by God. When Hosea starts ministering to them, there's about 30 years left before they're going to be, God will hand them over to be destroyed by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. And Hosea is going to minister during that whole time, right up until that defeat and even a bit afterwards. So as I mentioned last week, when you look at this book of Hosea and these 14 chapters, you could divide it into two sections, chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 14. In those first three chapters, you have everything that we know about Hosea's personal life. And then in the following chapters, we have Hosea's prophecy. So his marriage and his ministry is what this book is about. Regarding Hosea's personal life, it was bleak. God called Hosea into a painful marriage by telling him to marry a prostitute. Not a former prostitute, but an active one. A woman who surely would commit adultery. And then there were three children, and God told Hosea what to name the three children. The first one's name was Jezreel, which means scattered. The second child's name was No Mercy. And the third child's name was not my people. And God gave Hosea this family. We talked about this at length last week. God gave Hosea this family because it was to be a shocking and sad picture. It was to be a living 
example of God's relationship to his people. Where Hosea, the faithful husband, represented God, and Gomer, the adulterous wife, was representative of God's people. It was a picture of that tragic relationship. And then regarding the prophecy, chapters 4 through 14, the prophecy of Hosea, there were two major themes or two major messages. A message of judgment and a message of mercy. And as we saw again last week, Hosea used shocking language to describe God's judgment. We read many shocking examples of God's coming judgment. But what is actually even more shocking, more shocking than that message of judgment in Hosea, is this message we'll see today of mercy. It is a shocking message of mercy in light of Israel's rebellion, God's compassion is shocking. And frankly, it needs an explanation. So that's our goal today. To look at this book of Hosea one more time and understand this great message of mercy. We'll need God's help, you and me. So will you please bow your heads with me? Let's begin in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we all listen to this sermon, as I preach this sermon and even listen, would you help us to understand and apply your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Hosea. If you are using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 703. That's where you'll find the beginning of this book of Hosea. And we'll jump around a bit. Again, if last week was a look at Hosea's shocking message of judgment, then this morning is a look at his message of mercy. And we are going to consider this great charity of God under five headings. So if you're taking notes... Here are those five headings. The condition, the character, the compassion, the conflict, and the cure. So those five headings that we'll work under are the condition, the character, the compassion, the conflict, and the cure. So let's begin with the condition of Israel. The condition of Israel. What is, I know you know the answer, but let's think about it deeply. What is the condition of Israel as Hosea writes? They were in outright rebellion against God. They were against God. They had been at this point. They had been for centuries. There is only a very, as best we can tell, there is only a very small number of faithful believers. Hosea being one of them. There's only a small number. Here are two verses that we read last week. 6 verse 4. Israel's love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So their love is, it's fickle. 8 verse 1. Israel has transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They're breaking God's law. They're breaking God's covenant. They're in a covenant relationship with God. And they've ripped up the covenant. They're disregarding it. 
Let me read this quote at length. This was written by Mark Dever, and he summarizes the, the sin of Israel, the condition of Israel at this time. To begin with, their rulers were not righteous. These rulers dearly loved shameful ways, Hosea 4.18. And all their leaders were rebellious, Hosea 9.15. How were they rebellious? They turned to Assyria and Egypt for help instead of to the Lord, even though the Lord had made Israel a separate nation and a special people. And sin was hardly limited to the ruling classes, The nation was characterized by drunkenness, mocking, insolent words, and cursing. Over and over, they lied and practiced deceit. The people make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. They also stole. In fact, it sounds as if they stole at every opportunity they got, breaking into homes, robbing in the streets, even defrauding in the stores. The merchant uses dishonest scales. He loves to defraud, 12.7. As long as they were breaking the Eighth and Ninth Commandments, prohibiting stealing and lying, the people decided to go ahead and break the Sixth Commandment against murder as well, and so they murdered, shed blood, multiplied violence, left footprints stained with blood, even massacred. Hosea uses all these images Then they disobeyed the seventh commandment, which forbids adultery. Hosea, of course, was personally acquainted with how that commandment was defied. Illegitimacy and prostitution were rife. End quote. And the root, remember, of all that bad stuff was idolatry. The root of all that sin was idolatry. They, like you and like me, they had these inordinate desires. They had these life-ruling desires. They had these things that they wanted, and they wanted them so badly, they wanted them more than God Himself. And it would lead them to do terrible things. Just like our idolatry can lead us to do terrible things. We might want money too much. We might want possessions too much. We might want acceptance too much or affirmation too much or success too much. We might even worship our family more than we worship God. We might worship our work more than we worship God and on and on. So this was the condition of Israel. They were unfaithful to God turning to other gods, and they were openly breaking his law. Now next, let's be reminded of the character of God. The character of God. When we speak about the character of God, we're talking about his moral qualities. When you're talking about my character, your character, good or bad, we're talking about our moral qualities. God is, and fill in the blank. And before we say anything else about the character of God and who God is, the overwhelming biblical answer is God is Holy. Some of you knew that. Write that down. God, if God is anything, God is holy. In the sixth chapter of his book, Isaiah was given a vision of the Lord in heaven and the angels surrounded him and they were crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Not one time, not two times, three times. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. There is none like Him. God is set 
apart completely. He is the standard of morality. He is the fountainhead of morality. He is in a class by himself. He is a perfect God. Absolutely, totally perfect. Now, that holiness of God, that character of God, this righteousness of God is the basis of his judgment of sin. His perfection is the basis of his judgment of sin. He doesn't judge sin because it bugs him or because it personally offends him or because it ticks him off. God judges sin because it is wrong and he is the righteous judge. So as a holy God, he must judge sin. So, Put these first two together, what we've looked at so far. Put them together, the condition of Israel and the character of God, and you have this theme of judgment in Hosea. Chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is false, now they must bear the guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. 12.14 Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. One more. And we didn't read this last week. And listen to the imagery. In judgment, God is like a lion. And listen to the way Hosea describes this in 5.14 and 13.7. For I, this is God, will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. It's this image of a lion killing and dragging away its prey. And this is the image that Hosea puts before God's people to understand the judgment of God. And if you thought that was vivid imagery, he comes back to that image in chapter 13, verse 7. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. And that is the just and right response to sin. God is not literally this lion. He is not literally going to come and to rip His people apart. But He is using that image to communicate how severe God's judgment is. And remember, God is a holy God. God is a perfect God. He doesn't do anything wrong. Never, ever, ever. Which means that 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 is, the way you feel when you read that, that that is a just and right response to sin. Now listen, one of the reasons that Hosea writes like this, one of the reasons the Bible writes like this, 
is because you and I, we do not understand how bad sin is. We minimize our sin. We excuse our sin. We blame our sin. We're too quick to just gloss over our sin. We don't take responsibility for and own our sin. You know these temptations. We're tempted to think lightly of our sin. We just don't get it. So much so that we have this reaction within us when we read texts like we just read that say, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't feel right. That sounds like an overreaction. But it's not. And so what you take from this text and what you learn from this text is my sin is horrible. Sin is infinitely offensive to God. It is infinitely wicked. It is infinitely evil. It is so bad that this is what sin deserves. So that is the condition of Israel. And that is the character of God. But that brings us to consider another message in this great book. The compassion of God. Third, the compassion of God. And let me begin by juxtaposing those verses we just read describing God as a lion in judgment with this verse describing God as a lion of compassion. Hosea actually uses this metaphor of a lion to describe the judgment of God and the mercy of God. Chapter 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. This is now a mother lion. And when she roars this protective roar, her cubs run to her. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. We'll put all that together. God is the lion who tears apart his prey, but he is also the lion that protects his children. This is the Holiness, the judgment, the character of God, and it is the mercy, it is the compassion of God. We could go to another prophet, Isaiah. In chapter 49, verse 15, he said something very similar about God's compassion. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget yet I will not forget you. This love note from God. Jeremiah said the same kind of thing in chapter 31, verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. What compassionate language God uses to describe his heart for his people. God is holy and righteous, but he is also merciful and compassionate. So what will he do with Israel? And the answer is, to a degree, both. He will 
send his judgment, but he will also extend mercy. As Hosea writes, like Hosea with Gomer, God was letting Israel go her own way. He was letting Israel go her own way, but he would not destroy them, but he would preserve them through a remnant, through a portion of them, and he would rescue them again. And do you see what is it in the heart of God, what is it that drives him over and over again to deliver Israel? Remember that cycle. He delivers them and then they disobey again. And he disciplines them again. And then they are... They, they cry out in desperation again, and he delivers them again. Why does God continue to deliver them? And the answer is right here. Is it not his compassion? It is his great love for them, is what he is saying. It is his affection for them. They are... His children. Roger Crooks wrote, God will judge His people and His judgment will be humiliating and devastating, but He still loves them and, listen to this, judgment will not be His last word. So there is the compassion of God and that brings us to the fourth section in this sermon, and that is the conflict. And if this isn't clear, I want to try and explain it to you. This is the conflict of interests. What is, if you don't see it already, what is the conflict of interests here in God? There, there is a conflict that needs to be resolved. It is, it is an ethical conflict for this holy, righteous God. Israel's sin has rendered them justly condemned before God. So they stand justly condemned before God. They deserve His Temporal judgment, like Assyria coming down and conquering them. They deserve God's temporal judgment, but they also and certainly deserve God's eternal judgment. That they, because of their rebellion, would one day die a physical death, and then they would suffer another death, a spiritual death. That is, that because they had lived in rebellion against God and lived away from Him in this life, they would live away from Him and His affection and love and provision and protection in hell forever. So that's what Israel deserves. We've established that. They deserve His temporal judgment, His eternal judgment. So, though God loves them, and is filled with compassion toward them, how can he justly show them mercy? How can he do that and not compromise being a good, perfect judge? They must be, we know this, we all, as image bearers of God, have a high understanding of judgment. It comes much more naturally to all of us than mercy, doesn't it? What is your instinct when someone wrongs you? I mean, really wrongs you. Is your reflex mercy or is it judgment? It is judgment. Every time. We understand this moral, perfect quality of God, and so how can He as much as he loves them, and as compassionate as he is toward them, how can he justly show them 
mercy. How, how can God be holy and merciful? Look at the front of your bulletin. It is the same verses we read last week. You hear the great compassion of God. He says, in spite of all they've done, what does he say? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I've mentioned this before. Most people don't know who those people are. They were two cities, who those cities are. Well, they were neighboring cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. And most people know about those two cities. And they were destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But maybe even a worse punishment, they were erased from people's memory. God says, how can I? He's already established this is what you deserve, but how can I? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. But we're back to answering the question based on the holiness of God. How can he not give them up? How can he not hand them over? How can he not judge them the way he has judged the same kinds of sinners before? How can he not do these things? Proverbs 17.15 He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So God is writing and saying, here is something that is an abomination to me. Justifying the wicked. And yet, isn't that what God does? Don't we find Him with Israel? Don't we find Him with us justifying the wicked? If the problem is not already clear let me read you a quote that I read providentially in a devotion this week. This was written by the Puritan Stephen Charnock, and he does a good job of describing the problem. God's mercy rendered him forgiving, but his righteousness hindered the actual forgiveness. He had mercy for his creature to free him, but no mercy for his transgression to let that go unpunished. That justice, whereby he can no more absolve the guilty than condemn the innocent, was an obstacle to the full issues of his mercy. It is remarkable after all they had done that God even loved these people still. I would not have loved them. It is remarkable that God loved them. But again, how could he forgive them? Because he speaks in Hosea not just about rescuing them from the Assyrians, but rescuing them eternally from far greater enemies. How could he do that? Sure, God could overlook Israel's sin temporarily. He could restrain his judgment temporarily. And he could send provision and even rescue them. But as a holy God, he could not forever overlook their sin. It needed to be punished. That debt needed to be paid. The accounts had to be settled. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That is a conflict. Well, there is, of course, a solution. 
to the conflict. And this is the cure in Christ. The cure in Christ. How will this conflict be resolved? How would it be resolved for Israel? How will this conflict be resolved for us? A redeemer is needed. A savior is needed. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, and you'll remember there was a promise of a Savior even in Genesis chapter 3. One of the ways we've talked about this, you could describe the Old Testament as a book of promises being made, and then the New Testament as a book of promises being kept. And who is the centerpiece? It is Jesus. He is the promised rescuer, the promised deliverer who would deliver, not temporarily, but eternally, who would deliver once and for all. He is the Savior. Romans chapter 3. And if you've been reading your Bible as I've preached this sermon, or you've got it open on your lap, then this would be one to put your eyes on, not just your ears. So turn to Romans chapter 3. And then I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. Keep in mind this conflict. How can God be both just and merciful? Though He is a compassionate God, how could He forgive Israel of sin? How could He forgive us of sin? And the answer is here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who Believe. This is how it works, and now he's going to explain it. But he says the righteousness of God, the, the character is what we're calling it in this sermon, the character of God. This works through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this is who is forgiven. These are the wicked that end up justified. It is how? Through faith. In Jesus Christ. He goes on. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace. It's undeserved. As a favor. As a gift. Through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. He keeps going, but he is answering this question. So those who have faith in Jesus, they are justified. They will be forgiven. They are declared innocent in Christ through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So here Israel was, and here we are as sinners who stand before God condemned, deserving His wrath, deserving His judgment, deserving His punishment. There's no way around it. 
If God just winks at it or overlooks it or sweeps it under the carpet, he would not be good. He would not be just. It must be punished. And Jesus is described here as a propitiation, which means that when Jesus died and his blood was shed, that he died and his blood was shed in the place of others. It means that he was a wrath-bearing substitute. This is what propitiation is. He was a wrath-bearing substitute. And he is what? To be received by faith. So you hear that. You hear who you are. And you come to grips with who you are as a sinner and what you deserve from God. And then you learn who Jesus is and what he did. And then you believe in Jesus. You place your trust in Jesus for salvation. That means as a Christian, if you're a Christian, that does not mean that your sin is not punished. That doesn't mean that your sin is not dealt with. That means that Jesus dealt with your sin. That means that Jesus was your substitute. That means that when he hung on the cross and suffered, that he was suffering the penalty of your sin. There's all different ways we talk about this. He was paying the price. He was paying the debt that you owe. He stood there in your stead. Everyone's sin will be punished. Your sin will either be punished and you will suffer in hell, or your sin was punished in Jesus on your behalf. This, the end of verse 25 and then verse 26, this, all that we just looked at about Jesus and what he did, this was to show God's righteousness. And now here's the connection to Israel and this remnant that we're reading about in Israel who will be shown mercy because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So here God is being patient with believing Israel, but their sin still needed to be punished. And it was punished in Christ. And so, God's people in the Old Testament were looking forward to Christ. And the only difference is that we look back to Christ. It was to show His righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Another way of saying that is so that He might be just and merciful. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let me summarize that in one sentence. How the cure to this conflict, how the cure is Christ. God justly demands a sacrifice and then he mercifully provides it. And that is good news. We have sinned, and God justly demands a sacrifice. And then God mercifully provides that sacrifice. And that is, of course, through His own willing Son, Jesus Christ. So what? What should be our response to all of this? We'll see how Israel was called to respond. And here we are, and we are saved by the same compassion, the same mercy 
that same how can I, how can I, how can I compassion of God in Hosea chapter 11. It is the same compassion that has saved us. So for those of you who are here today and you are not believers and you are not Christians, you've just heard the greatest thing that you're ever going to hear. You've heard the greatest news that you could ever possibly hear. Of all the problems you have, and if you're like me, there's a lot of problems, but your greatest problem is that you are not reconciled to a holy God. And regardless of how kind and gracious and merciful He is to you in this life, your clock is ticking. And I don't know when this life for you is going to end, but I do know that when this life for you ends, that that debt is going to be paid. And you will be eternally alienated from God. So the good news you've heard is that Jesus has come and he's lived and suffered and died and he's risen from the dead in the place of sinners just like you. So that you, if you would believe this gospel and trust him and put your faith in him, that you would be saved. So you should believe and you should be saved. That is what you should do right now. For those of you who are here and are believers, I hope that you're filled with gratitude. A good question for you to ask yourself is, what kind of heart do you have for God? Is it cold? Is it distant? Is it, is it warm? Is it affectionate? What kind of heart do you have for God? When these, these prophets write the way they do, and they write the way they do with, in, poetically and with this imagery to speak to our heart, is your heart moved? Do you have love for God in your heart? Do you have gratitude in your heart for God? You must, if you're a Christian. If you don't, go back to the first part of this application. But if you do, then because you love God, as God called those Israelites, we should turn from our idols. We should live in a way that is consistent with our love for God. Because this is said about us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And of course, you can hear how this relates to Hosea. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, I want you to keep in mind the names of those children of Hosea and Gomer as we read on that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We started this study of Hosea by reading the first verses. Let's end by reading the final verses. Turn with me to Hosea 14. And there we find Hosea ending his book with an appeal to Israel to return to their holy and merciful God. And then we read of God's promised response. So I'll read this chapter and then we'll be done. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. 
Here's God's response. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words that you have written for us through this great prophet of yours. And now in response to your word, we turn our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son. May you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray, amen.